Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. We're here with John and Megan Adams. It's June 21st, 2023, first day of summer. We're out here at Wild Sound in McMinnville. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the first question, as you know, is why wine? <laughs> We're Funny excited about ask. this. <laughs> why wine? Uh, I think that for me personally, I'll let Meg go after, but uh, for me personally, wine has kind of changed my entire, sort of changed the entire trajectory of my life in that I grew up in a small town in Indiana and I didn't really, you know, my parents, my mom was a great cook, but there was never any focus on, you know, wine in our house. I didn't grow up with it at all. And it wasn't until, you know, Meg and I met in 2010, many years later, that my interest in wine started to grow. And uh, my career at the same time sort of had this perfect alignment with me meeting Meg and her job, which she'll tell you about. But, uh, so I, I went to college for music in Boston and I studied audio engineering. I went to Berkeley School of Music in Boston and I was a guitar player and uh, I wanted to be a recording engineer because I loved production, I loved music and that's what I did and uh, graduated from college in 2003 and I went to, you know, obviously I was in Boston and I moved to LA to be a recording engineer and I started as a unpaid intern at a studio and I worked my way up to being a staff engineer and the studio where I worked, we did a lot of, it was a music studio. So um, it was a classic place that had been there since the 70s, it was called Westlake Audio. And, you know, th they had recorded all these great records, all the classic Michael Jackson records, like Off the Wall, Thriller, um, a bunch of great stuff through the years had been recorded at Westlake. And that's where I worked. And I did a bunch of records there. And um, about, I guess, how many years did I work there? I wasn't working there when we met. But one day I was doing a show, I was doing a, a recording session for the Yahoo people. You know, remember Yahoo, the internet yeah. people? <laughs> they used to be a lot cooler than they are now. I still use the search engine every now and then, yeah. homepage. <laughs> but at the time, they had a music program where, you know, any, or any artist that was popular at the time would come in and play music. It's our dog, Ollie. It's our dog, Ollie, <laughs> making himself heard. <laughs> and so I, I did a shoot for Yahoo. And I ended up going to work for Yahoo. And this would have been probably 2006. And um, while I was working at Yahoo, I met a guy by the name of Jason Wise, who was a young documentary filmmaker who just happened to be working at Yahoo. He was, he was the DP, director of photography, on a show that we were doing at Yahoo. And I was the audio guy, just sat there at the mixing board and um, recorded shows and one day Jason came into my office and said that he had made this film 
and I said, okay, because most of the time when somebody, an independent filmmaker comes to you and says they have a film, most of the time it's not very good, <laughs> sadly, <laughs> but sometimes they are really good. And uh, so this particular film that he was working on turned out to be a movie called Psalm, which was, uh, which I think came out 10 years ago now, yeah. right? Yeah, 10 years. 10 years ago. So at this moment, Everything before that, I really had no interest in wine. And right about this time, 2010, is when Meg and I met. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I'll pause my story, let you get caught up to <laughs> So our stories can converge, yeah. We combine our stories. <laughs> well, so for me, why wine, right, is, as kind of John alluded to, it's the story of us. It really, it, it really is. Um, so I am from a suburb of Chicago, born and raised. I went to school at Northwestern. Uh, I was an opera musical theater major. So music as well in my background. Uh, moved to LA where I was a project manager for a music catalog company that's, that worked for Barry Gordy. And so I had to work with music catalogs such as Curtis Mayfield, Rick James. One of my jobs was to make sure Rick James is in his will, wanted to have rolling papers that had his signature phrases in it. I had to make sure that those happened. Um, so it was a very interesting, you know, career path in L.A. Uh, and then honestly, what happened was uh, that company the owner passed away and they kind of got absorbed and so at that time I was looking for my next steps in life and I always laughed because I would go into you know I, I was like I could look at uh, you know is it retail is it project management is it operations and I kind of found myself interviewing all over and one of those interviews happened to be at Wally's which if you don't know Wally's Wally's is kind of an LA wine institution um, it it opened in 1968, and uh, when I interviewed, I remember them going like, so what's your wine knowledge? And I was like, well, I order wine at bars. <laughs> so of course that gives me great wine knowledge. <laughs> um, so I started at Wally's in 2011. So I've been with, and I'm still with Wally's. Um, and currently, when I started there, I was an executive assistant to the owner. So at that point, I was kind of thrown into wine right away because I had people calling me for orders on wine. I had to take his orders. I had to understand the process. I had to know what was going on. Uh, and in doing that, I was doing that for about six months and I sat him down one day and I was like, you know, I really like this world of wine. I don't really like being your assistant, <laughs> but I want to stay here and I want to work with you. Uh, and he understood and actually allowed me in that time and in the time I've been there, I've almost worked every role at Wally's. In doing that, it really opened my eyes to what I loved about wine. And for me, it was interesting because I never was the role of the psalm or I was never the buyer. I was always, I was GM, I was an AGM. I was a, you know, basically operations. My current title, I'm VP of corporate services. I basically run our global systems. I make sure, I'm, a, I'm the project manager of Wally's. Um, I make sure our, our total company systems work with what we're doing. I work closely with operations. I work closely with accounting. 
But what that meant is I was never like the insider with wine. I was never the cool kid. I was the one that's like, oh, she says I can't pour my wine here at this table because we have to sit people here. You know, I was that person. So I, I always felt like I was a little bit on that outside, but it kind of really gave me this great in, inside to the wine because I learned the things that I loved about it was the stories being told. If someone came in as a big conglomerate and was like, I can pour you, you know, five glasses of this. And I'm like, that's great. What's your story? And that is what started to really draw me into wine. That, that is what sold a bottle, right? That is what I, I watched it time and time again. Our sales team, our Psalms were selling bottles where they had this connection, where they knew what was coming out of that, that bottle. I mean, we have 16,000 SKUs at Wally. So it's not a small collection. It's a lot to learn. Uh, so in that, it, it, it kind of helped to hone what was important to me about wine while learning kind of every other aspect other than, <laughs> other than that. And I, you know, we, I was poured things that I had no business drinking in my, in my twenties, no business drinking, you know, it was, so I was, I was very spoiled. I did, I got to do some amazing, you know, dinners. I, I, there was a gentleman by the name of Bippin Desai who used to do huge wine dinners all over the world. And I remember I had to help out with one and it was vintages ending in one. Right. And it was just like, whatever, vintage is ending in one. And you just like, and so it, it was such a crash course that I always say that John's my great, he researches everything. We'll watch everything. We'll read everything. And I'm the one that absorbs. I'm the one that like hands on has to see it has to be in it. You want, you know, like we're laying the irrigation line. I gotta be laying it down. Like it's got, I gotta do it. I can't watch it. <laughs> so I would say around that time to kind of bring it full circle, John and I started dating yeah. um, and we lucked out because we had a group of friends that were interested in exploring the world of wine, but not in a snobby way. So we would go to Paso Robles, you know, we would go to Santa Barbara and do wine tastings, but we weren't that group that would like sit there and, you know, it's like, oh, this smells of, it's, you know, we were the group that just were there to have fun. And we, and part of having fun. We're just kids, really. Yeah. I mean, we're like, we're probably what, 21, 22? No, 24. Yeah, yeah, John, we were like, we were like 28 at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at heart, at heart, at heart. Um, so for us, you know, and we always laugh because John, and we still get this from our friends, John was the guy that we first went wine tasting, was like... No interest in wine at all. I was like, why, why would anybody pay like 30 bucks for a bottle of wine when I could go just buy a six pack for... At that time, probably six dollars, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we started to get interested in wine at that time, and this is also coming back to my side of the yeah. story with the doing the Psalm film. Is I started working on this film, and if you haven't seen the movie Psalm, it's about these guys training to become master sommeliers, um, and uh, so. I, st I still didn't really care too much about wine, and Meg was working at Wally's. But I would start to bring home bottles. She'd bring home bottles. As you, got, as you did, and it was, you know, things that were opening up, things that interested me, things. And that was, the, that was the best part, I think, is that because I didn't come with this crazy history, I was bringing home stuff that I just liked. Mm -hmm. 
It wasn't like we have to drink this because someone said it's this old and it does this. I was bringing home stuff that I liked and stuff that I could be like, John, this, this really amazing person came in, talked to me about this, this is what they do with it. And that's how we started to really taste wine. And then John started to get more and more into the technical. Well, the wine, so there was a yeah. bottle she brought home, it was a 2008 Ridge Cabernet yeah. that kind of changed my mind on wine. I was like, this is pretty good. I should start to pay more attention to this. <laughs> Plus I'm also working on a wine film at the time. Yeah. I should probably start like, you know, paying attention. Uh, and that was kind of the bottle that changed my whole uh, mind. For both of us. Well, yeah, for both of us. It was just like that this, that this could come out of this bottle. It's not overly, you know, there's no like flash on the label. There's no, it's just a great story. It is a great wine. Classic wine. Just, it's a classic, yeah. And uh, so about that time, I started traveling with the crew that did the Somme film. Um, and that really changed my entire world. Like I just, you know, you got to, I was this kid from Indiana that really hadn't been too many places in the world. And all of a sudden, here I am traveling to anywhere you can think of in the world of wine. So like, you know, in the last decade, we've traveled anywhere from Armenia to, you know, all over Europe, you know, famed wine regions of the world. And we always laugh because we say he has the fun job in wine, right? <laughs> I got to deal, deal with the nitty gritty in a restaurant retail space. He gets to, you know, walk the vineyards of Shav. Like it's, you know, it's... Yeah. But he's the best person for it. That absorption of what you get on the ground, you, you can't make up for yeah, in anything no. else. Uh, so I got this crazy sort of weird education, um, just sort of passively by going to all these different places that I would have never ever been otherwise, right? Because when you're filming, you're on a film crew, you have access to things that you probably wouldn't have as a tourist. Um, and that's everything from like, you know, being able to talk to, you know, growers in Burgundy, actual farmers and asking questions, sitting through interviews, you know, hundreds of interviews that, you know, where people are talking about the wines they make, how they farm, what they grow, why they grow it, the food of the place, and you absorb all this information. And um, so that's sort of, you know, I, I came at wines in a, maybe an unconventional way because I didn't start working in a restaurant or, you know, I had no retail background. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so I think around that time, you know, and, and again, it's kind of interesting because he talks about a non-conventional way. It's kind of my career path is the same. Even though I was in wine, retail and restaurant, I wasn't a server. I wasn't working as, like I said, the Somme or the buyer. So both of our paths were a little different towards it, but we kind of came to this conclusion that we loved it so much that we want to start making it. <laughs> I think as you do, as you do, right? Um, and so we actually, we started making it in 2012 uh, in our one bedroom apartment. Yeah. <laughs> we found out that, you know, as a home winemaker, we had this, there was a winery up in uh, Camarillo, California, which is about, you know, 45 minutes northwest of LA and they would buy fruit from Santa Barbara or Paso Robles and you could just go buy you know a couple hundred pounds of fruit and make you know 
two, three cases of wine. And so that's what we started doing. Yeah, and started to develop that and... And we really loved it. It was yeah. like a, it was a weird thing that, mm -hmm. wow, we can, we can take this one thing, these grapes, and turn it into something that's actually pretty good. Like, you know, we've had some <laughs> shitty wines through the, <laughs> through the years, but for the most part, we've learned a lot, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so what what happened then? I think so. They, sorry, our dog is down here whining at us to throw a ball at him, um, <laughs> per usual. So, you know, I think at that point we were making wine, and the frustration that we honestly were having was that we knew we could make really good stuff, and we were, but we really wanted the control from start to finish. We really wanted. I don't, it just comes from, I think like, yes, you know, we were both Midwest kids. We both loved being outdoors. We both liked doing stuff, making it happen. And that's a great spot, but when you don't have control over what, you know, your grapes, are, your farming, your, what time your grapes are being picked at, what grapes, what they look like, what, you're just basically said, here's your bucket. Um, we were home winemakers after all. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we're not saying that, you know, so. So that started this kernel kind of in our minds of, well, do we go, do we take the next step? And could we do this? Could we do this? Is this crazy? Yes, is the answer. It is crazy, but <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. It's crazy. Uh, could we do it? Because at the time, like as our interest in wine grew, obviously, you know, we hadn't been dating longer yeah. and longer and we're getting more serious. And we also didn't have any intention of staying in LA. Yeah. You know, LA, we had no interest in that. We just, I grew up in a small town, very similar to McMinnville mm -hmm. size-wise. And um, amazingly, Meg was was totally down to leave LA also. Yeah, I just think it was a great place to be in our 20s in. I don't think, you know, long-term for what we wanted to do, it just wasn't feasible. We even looked, you know, we had looked at Paso Robles, we had looked there. Um, you know, not barring this year, California could use a little water. So, <laughs> especially for what we wanted to do and the grape and the style we wanted to do. Um, it was important for us that we had a little bit more control in that aspect. Uh, so, funny enough, John still with Yahoo was up here. Yeah, so I used to, I would come up to Portland because my cousin went to grad school in Portland. So I would, I'd come up you know, once, twice a year, and I loved it up here. It's beautiful. It's it sort of reminded me of home in a way, because my, you know, I had my grandparents as growing up lived over in eastern Ohio, and they had a Christmas tree farm, and a lot of similarities with sort of the foothills of the Appalachians with this area and the coast range. And so I was up here, believe it or not, I was on a shoot to interview Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. We're doing, we're doing a presidential interview on the Nike campus. I think yeah. it was 2013, maybe. And it was the first time that I had taken the time to come down to the Willamette because at this time I had just been going back and forth to Portland, just hanging out with my cousin. And um, so I added a couple days on to my trip and just spent a few days down in the valley. And I actually stayed at uh, McMenamin's in McMinnville. Mm -hmm. uh, 
one of the rooms with like the shared bathrooms and the little sink in the corner. It was great, very quaint. <laughs> Got to know people. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and I sort of like immediately fell in love with this whole area. I was like, this is pretty dangerous because I was I was like, this is it. Like I. I need to live here. Yeah, he called me. How can I convince yeah. my... He called me and was like, Meg, I, I think I found our spot. And I'm like, okay, hold your horses. <laughs> like, our family is all in the Midwest. We already are crazy because we moved to the West Coast, California. You know, like, okay, now Oregon? I mean, I'm, I'm in. I love you. <laughs> but, okay, okay, like, you know, I'm up for the, the adventure. Let's try it. And... To be honest, it was the the best thing we've ever done, hands down. It was just, I came here, I really got to explore McMinnville and knew this was this was our home. This was our town. Yeah, it was pretty great. Yeah. And so, you know, we... Now it was finding the spot. <laughs> well, we spent, we spent a couple years just coming up here, sort of just toying with the idea of like, like okay, can we do this? Do we want to do this? And, and the wines made here were what style we wanted. It was what we wanted to make, right? To like, make, like delicious, food-friendly, lower alcohol, higher acid, you know, great wines. And this was sort of, this was the place to do that. And um, so we, we sort of decided collectively, okay, I think we can maybe, maybe do this, you know? And we started looking for a house and at the time we really had no idea what we would be able yeah. to find or what we'd be able to afford um and so we spent like i don't know two, two years, years two and a half years looking for a place because we just we weren't willing either to compromise we knew you know some people look for places and they're they know they're going to be out in a few years we looked for a place that we knew would be our forever and that that meant for us a vineyard that meant making wine yeah that we were gonna have to plant because we couldn't yeah. afford to just walk in and to like go buy a vineyard yeah. <laughs> so we had to do this from the ground up and um we, you know we thought for a while we'd never find a place and then uh fourth of july weekend we were here and just by happened we just happened to come see a couple houses and this was one of them and it was always before it was either we'd find a really great house with no land or a really great piece of land with no house yeah. <laughs> and we couldn't do either of those we needed yeah. like we needed something to work with so uh we found this place in the coast range west of mcminnville um 40 acres most of it's wooded our vineyard's pretty small by by vineyard standards so enough for us five acres planted enough for us <laughs> So then, yeah. So we drove up Fourth of July weekend. We drove up that driveway, and both he and I were like, "This is it. This is it. Like, okay. it, it has we can do this. The location we want, right? Um, so that was decided on. Now the crazy thing is, we are surrounded by forests, but you know, across the way over here, you have um, Trisadum, their Coast Range Vineyard. So we're like, it can be done out here, and. Part of what we even discussed was with climate change, things are changing. And vineyards this high up are not really this high up anymore. So our next steps were, okay, we're crazy. We have yeah, a spot. Planting a vineyard at 800 feet 30 years ago was probably 
most people wouldn't do that, you know. Yeah. But we got lucky with this place because it just happened to have, you know, we have these beautiful volcanic clays. We have a southeast facing slope. Yeah. Vineyard tops out about 800 feet. And we were like, this, this is, uh, this is a perfect yeah. situation. So, yeah. so that's what we did. We had a, yeah, we have a nice spot down there. It is cleared about a total of like six acres, but we have a little under five planted. Um, and we do, we vast do majority vast majority ourselves, ourselves um, while still holding full-time jobs. You know, we always hope we're like the time capsule. We'll look back at this interview and be like, oh, those young pups, <laughs> little did they know at the time. Um, but we planted in 2019, which is great. Everyone is always excited when we say we planted that year. It's a good, it was a good year. Uh, we had lots of water. Um, so it was a good time to plant. Uh, so we put in a little under five acres, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Gamay, and a handful of Trousseau, as we say, but it's still a couple rows. <laughs> More of an experiment. Yeah. But I think that, uh, so with all of my travels throughout the wine world, we sort of took maybe, not necessarily an unconventional approach to planting the vineyard, but we we made it a point to plant a lot of different diversity within the vineyard. So, for example, like, you know, we have just over an acre of Chardonnay, but which is very small, but in that one acre of Chardonnay, we have, um, I think, 12 or 14 different clones of Chardonnay, yeah. which some people probably is, would say that's crazy, but <laughs> ultimately it all comes out in the wash and we, you know, having two small vintages yeah. under our belt now. The vineyard's going into its fifth leaf this year. Um, everything's gonna work out fine. You have some stuff that's a little underripe with acid and you have some stuff that gets a little riper. It makes a more dynamic wine. Yeah, for sure. Right? We think it really, by doing that, because we talk about like Pinot has 16 different clones, we think, 16, yeah. 18. So it, but it makes a really interesting wine. It's just a, it's a- As much down there yeah. as possible because I think, you know, diversity makes stuff taste better, you know, when you combine a bunch of, you don't, you know, a lot of people will just plant like, oh, I'm going to plant 15 acres of Pinot Noir and I'm going to put three clones in, you know, and we sort of said like, why don't we have these little micro blocks and we'll have maybe a more interesting wine someday. Yeah. But I would say still, at least four times a year, we talk about mowing down the vineyard. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just be real. Um, it is not all sunshine. Uh, we have, it's very hard. The, but you know. We knew. we knew going in, yes, it was going to be very difficult. We knew, but reality can also be sometimes. Did we know? Did we know? <laughs> reality is sometimes, you know, in your face a little bit more. Um, you, you're never clean. You're always dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Rain is, does not mean stop, yeah. you know, snow does not mean stop, <laughs> mud does not mean stop. Uh, the first, so the first two years were, I would say an eye-opening experience. Yeah, to us. say the least. It's not that we didn't, we didn't know exactly or that we weren't prepared to take it on. It was that until you're there. It's reality covered in mud, freezing, and it and then it starts pouring rain again, and you're like, oh, why did we do this? That being said, 
we're in a very happy spot with the vineyard. I would say the fruit produced last year, last year is our first commercial vintage going to be released at the end of this year. Um, and it, what came out of there really shined, which was exciting. It's the most gratifying thing, uh, you know, the whole, this whole adventure and experience thus far in the last five years since we've planted the vines has been, you know, one of the great adventures of our lives, I think. I mean, and that's why we got into this, right? It's like, it was, it was sort of a, why wouldn't we do this kind of a situation? We had such a passion for it. Um, it, it was just like, we had to do this no matter how hard it was. And it's been very hard, but it's also been super gratifying. And I imagine it will only get harder and more gratifying. <laughs> we have to sell the stuff as we go. that came out of there. Yes. But, you know, kind of bringing it back to like it being the story of us, it really is. Like wine developed as our relationship developed. You know, we, we've been together going on 14 years, married for the past three, you know, and like that's when we established here and that's when our vineyard established. So it really is about us. It's, it's, it's been our story so far. So we'll see, we'll see where it takes us next sometimes. That's a pretty good answer to why wine. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that was a real, that was a solid, uh, what did we do, 30 minutes on that? Yeah. <laughs> now, now for question number question two. Question number two. <laughs> <laughs> and cut. <laughs> so I want to back up a little bit and talk mm -hmm. about kind of, kind of pre-Oregon for both of you. Uh, yeah. Megan, Meg, I'll start with you. You yeah. mentioned kind of getting into wine, but in a very, kind of a strange, strange way, being, being in retail, but not sort of customer facing retail. So tell me about your own kind of personal wine education. You, you mentioned mm -hmm. kind of coming around to the style of wines that are being made here. Tell me about learning wine and also about like learning the story of wine. What, and what stories were the ones that you found pulled you in and pulled in buyers? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as I, as I kind of talked about, I never went into wine going like, oh, I'm going to come and be a server and make great tips, right? I kind of took the back route, which no one does because you don't make nearly the money you do <laughs> on the front end. You don't get any of the perks. Um, so for me, the reason I did that, though, is I came from this project management background. I, I really like operations. I like how things work. I like figuring it out. And it translates over to wine because it meant that when we got stuff in, I was asking questions that the normal Psalm wasn't asking. I was asking like, you know, well, how do you, like, how do you sell this? What did this start? Where did you go? You know, where did this, what idea, how did this whole idea start for you versus a, you know, how does this come off on the palate? How does this drink? So I was more interested in what they were bringing to the table themselves. And as the rep, you know, all the reps you met, it was, do you actually know wine or do you just know what someone's told you on a fact sheet? And it's real easy to, f to find that out when you're kind of come from that background, right? So for me, it started to become when you have that many SKUs that you're looking at daily, and it still is a little bit. I look at SKUs consistently across the board and some are just SKUs. But what's that one that makes you hang up and look into it? I think it's talking it's it's usually when they came in and talked and it's it you know we had i remember um there were some guys that worked at wally's and they have a winery now it's called dragonette 
in uh, Santa Barbara. And they was, those were Wally's guys, and they started that. And they, the story was they used to you know, store manage Wally's when it was over in Westwood, a small little wine shop. And they would drive to Santa Barbara on the weekends, the long drive, and they'd do all the stuff they needed to do and drive back. So there was always that, like, they can do it. They did it, you know, and they store managed a little wine shop at the time. Um, around 2014, Wally's closed up its Westwood location in order to open this new concept of a restaurant retail. And it was always what I loved about wine, right? Wine was not this stuffy thing. Wine was about enjoying it with friends, eating it with food, drinking it with food. So we had this concept now that like really worked with my brain because a person can come in, grab a glass of wine, walk around, eat dinner, have a cheese board, have it paired with um, tea, like, you know, you can do Oregon Chardonnay or you can do sauternes from France. You know, it's, you have this crazy thing going on that you're not limited to one thing. And when you have that selection, sometimes it's overwhelming because what do you focus your knowledge on? You, you, you can't, I can't tell you the inner workings of certain things just because it's so vast. But what I can tell you is that you don't get pigeonholed into one thing with wine. You don't go, I can only have this with an Oregon Chardonnay. Yeah, could an Oregon Chardonnay be my first choice of something? Absolutely. But I also know that there's another option made possibly somewhere else that's a little bit more obscure. You know, John recently went to Armenia and bringing back some grapes that you just don't, wines and grapes that you just don't hear every day, but you taste and you're like, wow, this would be great with this. This would be amazing with this and it doesn't have to be held on to. And so it's, it was a very interesting and eye-opening. And so I would have, I always found those that treated me the best made the best wine, right? I was the lowest on the totem pole at times. And those that didn't treat me well, honestly, their wines weren't as good. And that, you know, so I, I just have this philosophy of that those that, and that's kind of leads to what I love about Oregon. We have yet, I think, to run into someone that's like, I'm not telling you any of my secrets. We have only been into people who've been like, do you want me to, do you want to come over for dinner? I'll grill, I'll just, we'll talk about how you do this in the vineyard, or we'll talk about why I did this. It's a great community. And that is what is, that's what wine is about. That's what makes good wine. Good people make good wine. <laughs> and John, from your side, obviously, another interesting route into wine. Uh, tell me about uh, the Saw movie and, and kind of getting started with it and starting to, starting to kind of discover wine through that. What were your impressions from it and, what, and, and of kind of the aftermath of it? Well, I think um, on the first Psalm film, I was just the post-production audio mixer, so I didn't actually um, film. I wasn't on the production side of that. I was on the post-production, but there have since been three additional sound films. Uh, With another coming out. Yes, exactly. So the second sound film, that was the one where I really started to travel. Um, and I can... I can remember there was uh, one of the first trips I did with them. We went to, we spent like two weeks in Italy and we did um, Piedmont, you know, Barolo Barbaresco, 
uh, and then we went down to Tuscany and you know visited with a bunch of like Brunello producers and I remember thinking um, you know this is like my first trip with these guys I remember thinking like man we're filming with some pretty serious uh, wine you know historic wineries and I, I'm you know eating this incredible food that is historic to these places you know that goes with the wine um, and I just my mind just like lit up you know I was just like this is the coolest thing because wine is it's history it's culture it's food this liquid that's, that has all of these things that's so old like it just predates so much that yeah I don't know if that answered the question <laughs> did that answer the question Okay, good. But I will follow up. I'm, I'm, in all the travels, what are some of the other kind of memorable, I mean, obviously a lot of memorable moments. What are some of the ones oh, that yeah. stand out as you think of places you've been or, or people you've met? Definitely. So I would say uh, some of the coolest things that we have been able to do. Um, we filmed, we were in the Northern Rhone Valley and we filmed in the cellar with Jean-Louis Chave. And Chave is a, you know, historic producer I don't know how many 14 generations or something in the Rhone Valley and they make you know some of the greatest Syrah in the world and we were there filming in the cellar with him and he opened up a 1968 uh, Hermitage which you know is I don't know how much that wine costs it may be priceless it probably is priceless because it's it's came directly from the cellar and you know when you're in these cellars there's so much history i mean even recent history so for example in the shav cellar they have an entire portion of it that during the second world war was they built a wall to cut it in half so that the germans couldn't find the the bottles on the other side basically right it was like here you can have this side of the cellar and then all the good stuff is back here that we kept. So they have, you know, a lot of wines that, you know, pre-war wines, which is pretty rare in that part of France. Um, so having a, you know, obviously post-war 68, uh, having that wine was just, you know, pretty unbelievable. You don't get those experiences. That's one of them, probably the second, one that comes to mind would be um, we were in Rioja in Spain. I was gonna say you gotta. <laughs> we we're filming with um, Lopez de Heredia, which is another you know historic, amazing wine of the world. It's like one of those wines, one of those producers in the world that everybody should experience and know about. They're really affordable wines. Yeah. They're beautiful wines. Awesome. So we were in the cellar with um, Maria. Uh, Lopez de Heredia, and she was opening up just like vintage after vintage. And you have to understand, like, this is, you know, generations of family. Yeah, family cellar even. Like, it's just... Yeah, they've grown up in these places. This is this is their life and their, their the whole history of their family in these places. And she was opening up wines that nobody had touched since her grandfather had set them down on this 
this table in the cellar. And um, they weren't even labeled. So she didn't really know how old some of these wines were, but they were definitely from the 50s, you know, or possibly earlier. And some of them weren't good at all, but some of them were, were absolutely magical. And um, you see what I'm saying? He gets like the fun part. I mean, like, yeah. these are even like, this is just touching the surface. Like he's done the Vatican. He's done, uh, you know, Argentina. He's done Armenia. It's. Well, so the third, I will okay, leave you with sorry. one last <laughs> awesome thing. So uh, we were filming in Armenia a couple years ago, right before the pandemic. And um, we, uh, you know, I had never been that far east before, you know, and Armenia is a, is a, an amazing place because it's sort of the cradle of uh, wine, right? Like wine came from that, the Caucasus region, right? So like you have the, you know, Georgia, Armenia, Iran, those countries. And their history is thousands of years making wine. And we filmed that they discovered a cave there. It's called the Arani One Cave. And they have amphora buried in this cave that they have carbon dated or have DNA evidence of uh, wine tannins. So they were making wine in these amphoras 6,000 years ago in this cave. Now they were also doing human sacrifices <laughs> at the same time. But, you know, it's a little blood and wine, right? Isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing to see. True origin story. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, you just don't get to experience these things. And I'm forever grateful to be able, you know, to, to have been able to do the things that I've done through the years. So there you go. Three yeah. stories. <laughs> pretty decent stories, I, I yeah, guess. Good. I guess. Yeah. Um, so tell me about your initial before your whole the home winemaking time obviously yeah. you decided this something you want to try to do uh what were the biggest learning curves what were the biggest challenges as you set out to make good wine don't cook your wine that california that temperature is <laughs> a i mean i just i think like it's the same practices that we have now you have to like keep in wine and wine making whether you're doing it on a small scale or a large scale it has to be kept clean Sanitation, yeah, I think, was the biggest. Sanitation, yeah. So when you're doing it at home, right, it's, you're just like, great, we'll have bottles to have it, you know, a friend, friend dinner. That's awesome. But then you, you know, you realize you have to, it's a sterile environment. You have to keep it clean. You can't let it just sit out on a counter in California heat. <laughs> at the time when we started making wine at home, um, I didn't have air conditioning. Yeah, that was a big... Uh, in my little one-bedroom. Very interesting to taste wines uh, of different cooked levels at some points. Yeah. Um, and that was to say, you know, I think you go through all the, the learning curve of everything. You want to make great wine. Everyone wants to start off making great wine. And you don't. You just don't. You, you, and you have to fail to learn. Um, so, oh no, now you've thrown the ball. He'll be back a few times. All our lovely little vineyard dog. I think the things, uh, some of the biggest things we learned with home winemaking early on were definitely temperature, yes. sanitation, mm -hmm. um, you know, just learning the, the things like, you know, mallow, like malolactic fermentation. Um, at that time, you know, 
we were inoculating all the fermentations. We didn't, you know, we we're sort of scared to do any native ferments, yeah. you know, which now looking back on that, it seems kind of crazy, but you know, when you're first starting out, um, you know, you're sort of doing things by the book. And then once you know the rules, I think then you can sort of break the rules yeah. to some extent once you have more experience. And I think that a little bit with my career that helped us was knowing that not everyone's going to like your wine and that's okay. <laughs> right? That is what... Just try not to make it suck. Yeah, just try, <laughs> try not to make it suck. Exactly. But that is what I truly love about the human palate is no one's palate is the same. So if anything that like that has taught me is that when people come to me and they're like, oh, I only want to drink what you want to drink. You, you decide what we're going to have. I, I'm always like, it's okay. Pick, pick whatever bottle you want because what I like, you might not like anyways, because your palate's totally different. It doesn't mean it's unrefined it just, or like not, you know, you're not drinking wine how you should drink wine. You're drinking wine how you drink wine, how your taste buds taste wine, how your taste buds have wine interact with food. So this whole concept of like, this is good wine, well, good wine to who, you know? And you're just hoping to make wine that appeals to more palates than less palates. Baseline though, you gotta make it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We're not trying to make vinegar um, at this time. <laughs> but so yes, there's absolutely a baseline, but I just, I like to say like, it, it's just, it's a matter that you can also make wine that's good wine and someone will think it's the best and someone will say like, you know, I don't really like this one on its own, but I love it with food. And that's great to me too. So, yeah. So home wine making, I think taught us the, it start, taught us the ins and outs. We didn't go into, you know, putting our grapes in and going, okay, here we hope <laughs> the first time. Um, it, it, we definitely went through our trial and error time. Uh, it just, I think the vineyard itself allowed us to to gain the control back that we wanted, which is what was good. Uh, you are making so many fun sounds for this interview. It's going to just be all you crashing through leaves. And a lot of heavy breathing. Yeah, exactly, and squeezing of a toy. <laughs> so you mentioned that the control of the vineyard was, was a big, big, big part of what you were thinking of. So mm -hmm. what, what about the wines you were making before that made you think it was this was possible made you think that like commercial winemaking was something you could pull off good question. question i think our biggest complaint it's not even a complaint we have no pot to piss in here <laughs> it's complaining <laughs> somewhat no we um it was just that the the fruit that would come in when we were buying 100 pounds or whatever you know it would come in at like 26 bricks or something super ripe with no acid yeah so the fruit would come in super ripe and you know we we wanted to, we just didn't have a chance to work with fruit that had numbers like we were looking for. You know, we wanted to have some acid and like lower, less elevated alcohol and... Um, and access to grapes that we wanted to make. You're not always given that access when you're doing... We were limited to like Zinfandel, yeah. Cabernet yeah. and... Of one clone, right? And maybe so, some Syrah, yeah. which is fun. Those are all delicious, but we were we just wanted to make something that had a little more finesse than like 26 brick um, Zinfandel, yeah. you know. And, and truly with the vineyard, if there's something it's taught me too, it's that watching a vine grow from the point you've planted it and then each season 
you know, watching it happen, the smell changes, the taste changes, the look changes. And there is no greater education than that. Especially, there's no greater thing to understand going into your glass than that too, because, you know, it's like right now we're in flowering and that it smells bright and sweet. And it's such a great spring smell to me, uh, you know, spring, early summer smell. And you don't get that when you're just buying grapes. I feel like anybody who makes wine should have to grow grapes for at least one season. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. to see, you know, and you know, it's funny because when we started this whole thing, we didn't really realize that, you know, most people who make wine don't also farm. There's a large disconnect there a lot of times mm -hmm. and it was important for us to um, understand the whole process at least it was for me I'm sure yeah, yeah. yeah. like we just, just it's how our brains work it's, that's why John and I work out well together because we're just not the type that we're okay just knowing the last piece of the process we want to know the whole process and we we want to know how to to do it well and to enjoy it and not enjoy it <laughs> at times. But it was, it's just a really important, I just, as John said, I think that time in the vineyard, farming it, knowing when's it most painful, when like, you know, when you have to move that irrigation line for the third time, cause you only have it every four rows and you've just had a really long day and it's raining, you know, you have that to look back on and it's a little blood, sweat and tears, you know, in it, but but then you just start to see these grapes develop, like there's just nothing like it. There's really nothing. <laughs> it's so corny, I feel like to say, but there's like, there's nothing like it to be like, it's growing, <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, there's and- no greater education than, than, you know, farming a piece of fruit that then you turn into wine. Yeah. So. But it's not for the faint of heart. No. At all. Well, with that said, tell me, tell me about installing the vineyard and about the decision for size and layout and all the different clones you went with. What was the process like of selecting and of actually installing? So we... A lot of research, yeah. I will say. Years of research. <laughs> but it, we, we decided on the size um, that we sort of thought that we could manage between the two of us because like as we said earlier we do you know almost all the farming um, and it's very difficult to do when we both have full-time jobs so it's like two full-time jobs but yeah. you know we decided to we were really excited about um, Chardonnay and Gamay mm -hmm. in particular um, I think Pinot sort of goes without saying yeah not to knock Pinot because it's a beautiful yeah. grape and it's a beautiful co-ferment with Gamay too so that's that's a fun thing but so we knew we wanted it to be in there but we also knew we wanted to explore a little bit beyond that hence you know we throw in some trousseau noir in there at the end we thought at some point we might plant poussard and do a little jura blend but we're good we're good at this point um but i think it was at the time it was a lot of research you know it's it's funny we talk about like in looking at vineyards and how they're planting john thomas he was one of the vineyards we looked at, you know, that size, how could he manage it? You know, what was he managing? So he was one of those. Show, as you know, um, and makes delicious, great wines for yeah. many years. And Wally's was actually one of the first, was the first to sell him in Southern California because 
our buyer at the time, Gary, became friends with him. And so, and he went to IPNC and he had a, a Thomas wine and was like, this is magical. So, I mean, like, it's just this small world of that, but. So to get back to, your, so the, back to your question, why we, why we. We did. So, you know, we looked at a lot of different rootstock combinations. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason why, like, we, we went for the clonal diversity that we went for is, is that was sort of our take on, like, selection massal in France, where, like, you'll take vines that are successful and propagate those and replant those. And over the course of time, you have a lot of diversity built into a vineyard, right? So short of doing that, we will, you know, we'll take a bunch of different clonal material. And, you know, that's a, di that's a mix of, you know, like heritage California stuff that probably, you know, got a bad rap in the 70s and 80s when they were planting, you know, like Wente Chardonnay yeah. in California or in Oregon and it wasn't getting ripe. So then you went the opposite direction in the 90s and everybody planted Dijon stuff. Um, so we, we have like a healthy variety of, you know, sort of heritage clones for lack of a better term and Dijon stuff as well on a variety of rootstocks. Most of it's like pretty common in the Valley. It's all like Riparia Repressors Cross. So it's like, uh, 10114, 3309, um, nothing crazy there, but you know, the cool thing about our site is we have these volcanic clay soils, which um, are really important to us because they hold on to water. Tain a ton of water, which is great. In the summertime, and we wanted to have a site that we didn't want to irrigate, right? We sort of felt that like irrigation was, you know, in a lot of places it's, uh, it's totally necessary, but here, at least so far, I, not yet, depending on the soil you have, right? Yeah. Um, but if you have a lot of clay content, you can usually get away with it. And um, so that's what we did. We watered the vines for the first um, two years. Mm -hmm. And and most of them survived. Pulled it out and they, you know, they do just fine. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it was a whole process. When we, when we say we did this from start, the very scratch, I mean, we really... It yeah, was, we put up the deer fence ourselves. Yeah. Oh. We pounded an end post. Don't even remind me. I will never do deer fence. I will only do deer fence for myself if ever needed. <laughs> we capitulated and gave in on the line posts because they were the sheer number of them would yeah. have taken us. We did drag them all out there though. I will say <laughs> we dragged every single line post yeah. out there. But you know, we were on the ground. We had a group of friends come in March of 2019 and help us finish planting and, and it's, you know, on their butts. We should say we did have Jessica Cortell's team yes. help us with the planting. She was a lifesaver. Shout out to Jessica. Yeah, because, Tara. I mean, augering, unless you've done it, don't, don't want to do it. Augering holes. Um, those guys were incredible and helped us really get that done. So they helped, we were out there with them planting and then had a group of friends in planting. And you know, it's just that, that experience of understanding you're kind of like putting in the ground. It's, you know, anytime you plant, garden, anything, you put it in the ground, you're like, all right, grow. But this one, you're like, okay, please grow for years. It's a real years. expensive garden. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a very peaceful spot. It actually really actually helped us find our name um, to kind of go into that a little bit. So we're Wild Sound and Wild Sound is actually a production term for the sound that a place makes with no human intervention. 
It's the natural sound. It's the natural sound of a place. It's the breeze in the trees. It's the dog rustling in this ball. It is, you know, the birds chirping. It's the change of the season in the air. Um, that is wild sound. And so when we were coming up with names, you know, this is one of the hardest things. Like if you plant a vineyard and you're making wine, like your name is near and dear. It was very hard. And so we came up with so many things. And I think, you know, we just sit there and you listen. And you're like, it has to be all of this. And so for us, that was all of this. Yeah. So you mentioned that your first wine is, is, is getting closer to release. So tell me mm -hmm. about the process of making commercial wine for the first time. Uh, <laughs> decisions going into sort of uh, style and, and how long and, you know, and release and all of that. Mm -hmm. And sort of what you're thinking about it for future releases. Yeah, so we, this year, or I guess 2022, um, we, we made the executive decision to do a, a co-ferment of Gamay and Pinot Noir. So it's sort of like a pas grand situation. Mm -hmm. And Based off of what we could get out of the vineyard and not over maxing the vineyard either. Knowing it was really a, a yield decision because we didn't have enough uh, fruit in year four to really like, you know, have single variety wines. Um, but it actually, it, it was a, a good decision because the wine turned out really great. We decided to, um, we did a fair bit of whole cluster. Um, mm -hmm. We foot tread the tank. Yeah, I almost got stuck in the tank, foot treading. So that's always fun. It's a nice mix of, of uh, whole. You learn techniques to get out real quick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we were pretty easy with it, pretty gentle. We just, uh, you know, foot tread the tank. Um, I should say we actually, we make our wine over at Mysara. Uh, that family is incredible. They're the most pay it for people in the valley that you will meet. Um, yeah. They have the greatest part about them is it's kind of what's indicative of the valley. Any question is no small question for them and they're happy to answer. And when I talk about like getting stuck in the tank, I had Tom and I, they've been like, here's a ladder. <laughs> Let's just get you out. And you know, all her, all her fun tricks that with her crazy, insane knowledge that she has. Um, so we make there and it's so great because you know, you're in a clean space. You know, you're in a space where they, they have beautiful fruit and they make incredible wine. So it's all of our philosophies. Like I, we're not in a space where I'm like, oh, I, I don't like what's being made here. I don't like what's in the air here. We're, we're making wine in just what we consider just some ideal conditions. Yeah, it's a great place. And it was unique because they, they allowed us to make our own wines, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's surprisingly difficult. Um, you know, to find a place as a small producer, it's it's hard sometimes to find a place to make wine. Uh, and so we were extremely lucky with um, the Momtazis to let us do our thing to, to make our wine. And really, you know, it was they gave us space. They said, you do whatever you need to do. If you, you know, if you have any questions, you know, Tomina is amazing. She helps us with any questions we have. And so we made the wine. Yeah, develop our wine. And like, like John said, you know, we do tend to enjoy whole cluster red. Um, so that tends to be a little bit more represented in our wines. Going forward, we actually really have enjoyed this, this Pinot Gamay co-ferment and could possibly be kind of our field, uh, field blend wine going forward with, we're hoping a single Pinot, Chardonnay, uh, Gamay. And then, 
you know, who knows if we get this magical extra fruit, we'll have maybe some rosé for the summertime. <laughs> but we've also, you know, we're, you know, in all my travels around the world, I'm really interested in different fermentation vessels, yeah. you know? So like this year, we're gonna try um, a couple wines in Amphora, both mm -hmm. fermenting in Amphora and then aging in Amphora. And that was, that was sort of brought, up, uh, brought about by my, um, my travels to like Armenia, for example, Georgia, Armenia, you know, they make a lot of wine in Amphora, buried in the ground. We aren't burying ours in the ground, but, um, and also, you know, things like concrete, um, different types of oak, you know, and they all do sort of different things with the yeah. wine. and Different things with the mouthfeel, different things on the nose. You know, those Amphora wines have such a beautiful nose to them at times, and that palate is just, I mean, Beckham does them beautifully here in the valley. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an exciting vessel. We, we truly believe that there are some really exciting vessels to utilize. You have your stainless steel, you have your oak, you have this now Amphora, um, and it plays into the type of wines that we just want to make that have that, have that food-friendly acid for, but have that great palate, that great nose. You're not plugging your nose to drink it, to enjoy it with your food. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's the plan. So beyond that, then tell me what else is kind of on the on the future horizon for Wild Sound. Are there other things you'd like to do, uh, other projects you want to undertake, a certain growth you're looking for, or is it kind of playing it by ear at this point? I mean, I think that we're at this point we're just trying to get the entire vineyard online. Yeah. You know, because when you start, I think you know from the beginning it's it's been important for us to develop this vineyard as our own, sort of like a state wine. And, you know, I think we'll be able to, that our vineyard will probably max out at, you know, 500, 600 cases a year mm -hmm. on average. Um, so at some point we'll have to start probably buying fruit. Um, and- But kind of also when we talk about, we're like, you know, the babies of the wine world, not like one of our most exciting projects ahead is getting to share it. Right, I, I, I want to have people over and be like, try it. Yeah. Got some good food, you got a good bottle of wine. You know, people in this valley have been so kind and everywhere you go, you know, you deal with winemakers that, here you go, here's, here's a bottle, here's a bottle, like open mind, let's just drink it. And we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to share our wine. So I think our, as John said, our biggest project going forward is really bringing this now to fruition. Like we've gotten to the point of we have a vineyard, it's online, it's producing fruit, thank goodness. Um, now let's get it to its full potential and see where that goes. It, you know, I, I think between the two of us, farming a little under five acres is the max we can do. Should we want to expand later on, it would require, you know, it would require help, to be in all honesty, it would require help. Could we expand? Yes, but is that in the cards that we need at this point? Also requires cash flow. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, those two things are very two. So at this point with a little under five acres farming and making wine, we're going to have enough stuff to get out there into the world and share. And, and the projects ahead of expansion or bringing in fruit or, you know, so many people in this valley make beautiful fruit. Sharing fruit is never out of the question and it's all exciting possibilities, which is part of the naiveness, naivete I will say we have probably. 
There's nothing but sunshine. There's nothing but sunshine, no. Yeah, this, this interview will be a nice time capsule to look yeah. back on in 10 years. I feel like not even 10 years. I feel like get me in like a month <laughs> when we're doing sprays and still, I mean, get me yesterday when we were doing wires and tucking shoots in and I'm like, yeah, this row could go. This whole row, I wouldn't miss it. We wouldn't miss it. This row can go. I mean, there are clones down there that we always love the gamut. It, it goes straight. We have some of those mixed Dijon clones that just go whoosh. Yeah. So when you're trying to tuck those in, oh, yeah. no, you just are like, oops, that ripped out. How did that happen? Hopefully it'll be fine. You talked about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon and uh, of the industry here. Tell me about uh, sort of changes growth you've seen as in the Oregon wine industry up to now and sort of what the industry looks like to you right now in, in 2023. I think it's exciting. It, it scares a lot of people because it's growing. And growing is a good thing and a bad thing, always. <laughs> but I think it's a really good thing for Oregon producers of any size. I think I'm not scared of... The rising tide lifts all the boats. Yeah, <laughs> the rising tide lifts all the boats, exactly. I, I'm not scared of the huge conglomerates because we're not, we're not a 100-acre vineyard. We're never going to be. That's not this property. So it's not who I'm competing with. And on that level, I, I, you know, I'm never going to have a thousand cases of just rosé. Um, so I think there's enough room for all of us. And it's kind of understanding that it can be scary because it can seem like the valley is just being bought out. But there's just a genuine vibe here. And farmers here <laughs> and vineyard people and people still coming in you know that it brings the right crowd in to buy our wine but also allows us still to be you know regular people yeah and i think like um you know i am excited about the potential for varieties other than pinot noir yeah. you know i think like oregon chardonnay has a ton of potential that is unrealized. You know, I think I think the climate here is so perfect for Gamay. I wish more people grew Gamay because it's a, you know, it's a delicious wine. It's, you know, I think it's probably like the price point of Gamay is what holds growers back from planting it is that, yeah. you know, you just don't get as much for a ton of, you know, Gamay as you for a ton of Pinot, which is sad because I think from a climate standpoint, it's it's maybe well, maybe I mean, a better I think, grape. I don't know. I think also we went through the phase, you know, our parents' phase was the white Zinfandel, right? And, and we went through the phase of Beaujolais Nouveau. And I'm not knocking Beaujolais Nouveau, but there were some pretty bad ones made out there that kind of wrecked the Gamay grape in general for a while, that no one was planting it because it was considered this grape that was a gimmick and not a smart. But when done right, like, like LaPierre, Beaujolais is like one of the great wines of the world and um, it's magical. It's great. So yeah, as John said, I think the excitement of, it's also the excitement of what everyone brings, right? Farmers, if, if it's all one thought, one ideology, you make real boring stuff. I, we're excited for what's happening in the valley at least, but you know, we're a little tucked away up here on our, <laughs> we're the hermits on the hill of Oregon. <laughs> does come next to Oregon wine, where is the industry headed? You know, I think at least from, you know, watching it, at least on the retail world side, I think that 
it, I think it's, it's a, people are still considering it a discovery phase. And so, I mean, my hope is, is that Oregon wine doesn't get pigeonholed, you know, you don't want it to get pigeonholed into one thing. And so it becomes this place of creativity. You know, we don't need to be the cabs of Napa. We don't need to be the Pinot Noirs of the Willamette Valley. You know, I think the more we diversify what we're doing, the, I think then I foresee Oregon being this place that becomes the wine that people order because it's different and yet produces beautiful stuff. Like I just, like we talk about Chardonnay. I mean, you can, you know, obviously Burgundy is the gold standard, but you can have an Oregon Chardonnay that you're like, where did this come from? Yeah. And it can blow your socks off. It really can. So I don't know. You can, you can speak to it too, but I think that's, that's the direction I see it going in right now. I see that people are taking a little bit more chance. People are looking at things a little differently, which is not a bad thing, but also we have the OGs here that are, that are holding ground for us as well, allowing us to have this too. Let's be honest. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't plant what we plant and do this kind of fun experimentation without the, you know, the Soka Blossers, David Lett, you know, you can't, it requires them to lay that foundation and say, you can do grapes here and you can do it well, <laughs> to be able to allow us to make gamay. It also takes a really long time yeah. to establish a grape growing region, you know, like yeah. if you think about, you know, obviously this place is never going to become the Napa Valley, right? But and nobody wants that. But if you look at just from a historic standpoint, you know, the Napa Valley, it, it took it took Robert Mondavi really in the 60s to sort of put that on the map. And the Napa Valley today is a, is a complete juggernaut of a wine producing region that's known the world over. And yes, people know Oregon wines the world over, but Oregon has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, so does Napa. So does, you know, yeah. the new world in general has a long way to go to, uh, to become, you know, truly great I think there's wine this region. fear in Oregon of becoming Napa. And I, I just, I want to say that it's a, it's a valid fear, but it's not a fear, as John said, that's going to happen overnight. And it's not something that we're even in the direction of. Yes, does that mean more popular and more recognizable? Probably, yeah, that is where Oregon is headed. But it doesn't mean that we're the next Napa. It just means we're the next Oregon. So what is that? You know, like, that's the thing. I, I don't think there is one path for wine the future of the brand already a little bit. Tell me about the future for the two of you outside of that. Anything else that you're looking ahead to, either individual work or together as a couple here? Uh, traveling at some point in my life. <laughs> we uh, a vacation. discovered real quickly that when you farm a vineyard, uh, most of your money goes there mm -hmm. to the vineyard. And, and summers don't exist. Time goes to the vineyard. so. It's have fun traveling in January. I don't think we've been on a vacation for probably, I don't know, eight years. No, not true. After our last harvest, we went to the Oregon coast for one night, two nights. Two nights we did, yeah. Two nights. Um, no, I think, I think for us it's that it's, there's never any balance. You're never going to strive for balance. You don't get into wine. You don't get into wine to make money. You don't get into wine to find balance, right? So um, I think that... 
for us, it's just personally, it's probably finding, you know, being able to maybe find that time to travel at some point. You know, we want to keep exploring. We kind of want to always keep learning too. So I think if you talk about a, a, a group goal for us, Team Adams here, yeah. um, it's to always keep learning. And so for us, that does mean getting outside of Oregon, outside of the valley, seeing what other people are doing, seeing how other wines are tasting, what styles, what do vintages look like, what do yields look like. I, we got to take Meg. I need to take Meg too. All we all, cool we all need to take me. <laughs> <laughs> These cool places that I've been able to visit with my work. Uh, yeah. But because those nights when he's like, oh, you know, I was in Rome and we were at this cafe having pizza and I was like, oh, I made pasta tonight out of the box <laughs> and I raised more wires in the vineyard tonight. So, so he owes me a few of those wine trips. He owes yeah, me. Sure. Uh, I also tell Jason Wise he owes me a few of those trips too. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, that will probably, if ever, be our next, <laughs> yeah. always to continue mm -hmm. learning and always together to do it because I think the more we ta tackle this with each other, a lot of people will say, don't go into business with your spouse. Funny thing is, John and I work real well together. Yeah, we do. And, you know, we were one of those that we were, you know, during the pandemic, it was funny because everyone was like, oh, now we're 24 seven with, I'm like, we're kind of like, that's how we are pretty much every day. And we, we both work from stuff. home. Yeah, so we're we both work. here with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. So we both have, you know, we have different styles of approaching life, but it works really well in the vineyard because there are days when John's like, one more row, Megan. And I'm like, no, you promised me. And I'll go, okay, one more row. And then there are days when I do go, you promised me. And he's like, you're right. We need to be done for yeah, that. We push each other, challenge each other. It's good. Yeah. Helps out. So the questions that I have for the two of you. Okay. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover? I mean, I feel like we talked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> These I always feel like we talk a lot. I think, I mean, I, I don't think there's really anything that we missed. No. I feel like I just told my whole life story. Yeah. <laughs> you got a full point of this? Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really, I think, actually, this is exciting. This was exciting for us because rarely do you get the chance to sit down and tell kind of your life story from start to finish of where you're at at this time and you know we've chatted for a long time now it feels like but i we feel in such a better place to be able to even tackle this because i just don't know if you know two years ago it was just such a different spot it's a different being able to talk to it a different way in two years from now, it'll be totally different. Exactly. That's what's so funny about all this. Sales under our belt. We'll yeah. <laughs> we'll may have, may have mowed down the vineyard by that point. So, um, <laughs> but I think it's, I, I think for us, it's a, it was exciting to get to do this because, and I think it's such a beautiful project. So yeah. congratulations to you as well. And thanks for, thank you for Glad having us. excited about it. And it is, it is a. It's not, you don't get a lot of chances, like you said, to sit down and reflect and kind of figure out how you got to where you are. So glad, yeah. glad you enjoyed and glad you look forward to it. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing your time, your beautiful space, your Thank wonderful, you. your wonderful, well-behaved dog. Yeah. Uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.